What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. This is the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. I mean, Catholics can call in and we get calls from Catholics every day we do the show. However, our primary mission here is to answer questions from non-Catholics. Maybe you are a Catholic, but you have a friend who has a question about the Catholic faith and you're not quite sure how to answer it, well, we can help you as well. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Are you listening to us outside of North America? We have a special phone number just for you, and that number is 1-205-271-2985. And of course, you can always send us an email. The address for that, ctc at ewtn.com. Charles Beery is our producer. He is a Working hard today. We also have um, Matt Kabinsky handling the phones. He'll be the first voice that you hear when you call. And uh, Rich Jesse, I believe, is doing our uh, social media today. If you have a question uh, that you would like to pose via YouTube or Facebook, uh, we're streaming there right now. Just put it in the comments box, and uh, Rich will see that. He'll shoot it to us here in Studio One, and off we go. I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? Doing great. How about you? Well, you know, thinking about the Roman Empire, but doing well. The Roman Empire. All right. Why, why, are, you, why are you thinking about the Roman Empire? Well, actually, I'm referencing a, a new Internet meme. I don't know if you've heard about this meme, which is, ask a friend of yours how often he thinks about the Roman Empire. Yeah? Yeah. So you don't know this meme. I seem to remember a reference to it, but it, what does it all mean? Well, somebody apparently in, in Sweden posted this on a short-form video, ask yeah. the man in your life how often he thinks about the Roman Empire. And it was a, the, the postulate is that men think about the Roman Empire more frequently than women do. That's the, that's the, that's the question. Uh, so how often do you think about the Roman Empire, Tom? Not too often. Is that right? Not okay, too often. Yeah, yeah. But it's interesting now that you're bringing it up because there, there's like an old saying that, you know, uh, if I tell you don't think about pink elephants— that's all you're going to think about for the next two hours. Well, see, I, I, I read a lot of biblical <laughs> studies, right, yes. obviously. And, you, I mean, I'm reading a book on Paul right now, and so I'm thinking, literally thinking about the Roman Empire. Well, I guess you are. Yeah. We're going to lead off with an email here from Shelley. Dear Dr. Anders, Protestant friends and family say that according to Ephesians 4, verse 30, once we are sealed with the Holy Spirit, we are eternally secure as far as salvation goes. Now, I know this isn't right, but how do I explain the context of the verse? Is it simply a warning to baptized Christians not to make the Holy Spirit sad by our sin because he will leave us? What does being sealed actually mean? Respectfully, Shelley. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. Well, one thing that it does not mean is that your salvation is assured such that it is impossible for you to be lost. All right. If that were the case, then Paul wouldn't constantly warn his readers against uh, failing to keep in step with the Spirit and, and with the threat of punishment. I mean, you know, Romans chapter 8 is a classic text on this where Paul says, you know, if you, if you, if you uh, walk with the Spirit, you, the, the fruits of the Spirit will be made manifest in you. But if you, if you don't and you return to 
those deeds of darkness, and he says this in the book of Galatians as well, then you've got wrath and punishment on the horizon. So we, we, what exactly does it mean to be sealed? Well, you know, a seal is a kind of, a, the, the presence of the Spirit in, the, in your life is the pledge of your uh, future life. I mean, that's the, the, the activity of the Holy Spirit in you is the pledge of eternity. But it is possible to grieve the Holy Spirit and to lose that connection to God. So don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. All right, very good. Uh, Matthew's watching us on YouTube this afternoon. Matthew says, could you please explain what the hand of friendship is that is offered to lay people and ministers from the Anglican communion when converting to Catholicism? No, can't say I've ever heard that phraseology before. The hand of friendship. Yep, can't say I've heard that. I mean, in any... No. I mean, I'm a convert to the Catholic faith, and I was confirmed, but I don't remember a particular hand of friendship. From the Anglican Communion. Interesting. Well, all right, we'll have to look into that further. Matthew, thanks for watching on YouTube this afternoon. Here's one from Tim in Austin. Why, in some Catholic theology books, do they mention anthropology? Like in two books on eschatology, Joseph Rattinger's Eschatology, Death and Eternal Life, and Paul O'Callaghan's Christ Our Hope, An Introduction to Eschatology. Anthropology seems like it would be more related to human societies and cultures. Can you please give some examples reconciling of theology to anthropology? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So the confusion that you have is is you're used to the term anthropology referring to the modern academic discipline. Yeah. Right? When theologians talk about anthropology, they're they're not talking about that. They're talking about the theological analysis of the human person. What does theology reveal about the nature of the human person? And so you, 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 you could conceivably address some of the same kinds of questions that would be addressed in a, uh, a college anthropology course, but that's not its primary concern. It would be things like, uh, you know, the, the, the doctrine of sin, for example, or original sin, um, the wounds of sin and concupiscence and the life of the virtues, all of those things impinge on the question of anthropology or at the more metaphysical level, the nature of the soul, uh, the relation of the soul, the soul to the body, uh, the nature of the human intellect, how we know things, how we can know religious truths. All those things fall under the category of, you know, if we're thinking theologically about the nature of the human person. These are the kind of things we might want to might want to look at. If you look at St. Thomas Aquinas's Summa Theologica, the first book, he has a whole treatise on 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 the human person, uh, you know, uh, body and soul, the nature of the soul, the nature of human knowledge, all of that would fall under the category of anthropology. Very good. And one quick one here from Brian in Dublin, Ireland. I'd like to know if there's a distinction between a person's soul and spirit. Yeah, thanks. So we were just talking about them a moment ago, right? In Catholic anthropology, uh, humans are understood to be... Uh, uh, singular organisms, right, uh-huh. that have an immaterial aspect to them, a formal aspect that's immaterial, and uh, we don't think that the immaterial aspect is subdivided into soul and spirit. So when those terms are used, say, in sacred scripture, they typically refer to two different uh, modes of approach, if you will, to that immaterial aspect. Soul usually means what it is about a human person that makes them to be a a living, rational Uh thing. Uh And spirit is with reference to the question of relationship with God and eternal life. But we're not not looking at two different substances in the human person. Okay, Brian, we're delighted you're listening to us in Dublin, Ireland. Uh, Please keep listening. In a moment, we're going to get to the phones. We'll talk with Liza in Liberty, Missouri, Eileen in Dallas, and uh, lots more at 833-288-EWTN for Call to Communion. Stay with us. 
It's called a communion with Dr. David Anders here on this Tuesday afternoon here on EWTN. Our phone number, we do have two lines open right now, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. We're going to get to those phone calls in just a moment. You're probably listening to us. Well, who knows how you're listening to us, quite honestly. There are so many different platforms, uh, but one of the unique platforms that we're very excited about is all of our AM and FM radio affiliates. And there's over 400 now just in the United States, over 500 worldwide. Would you like an AM or FM station in your neighborhood? Well, you can help start a Catholic station right there where you live, powered by the truth of the church and EWTN's dynamic radio programming. And something that Mother Angelica made very clear at the very beginning of our radio outreach, it's absolutely free for our radio station to pick up our programming. And that is the most expensive uh, exp- you know, the most expensive thing you can incur when running a radio station. Programming costs more than anything, and we're giving to you absolutely free. How do you get started? Well, I recommend you email our friend Steve at this address, radio at EWTN.com. Just tell Steve where you're living and, uh, you know, ask him how to get started. He'll get right back with you. Again, the address for Steve, radio at EWTN.com. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. And we begin today with Liza, a first-time caller from Liberty, Missouri, listening on the Great Covenant Network. Hello, Liza. What's on your mind today? Liza in Liberty. Hi. Hey, Liza. Hi. Uh, Thank you for taking my call. Sure. Um, I was actually just calling. um, I I am Catholic, and uh, I, you know, I'm a practicing Catholic, but there are still some some things that I don't, questions I don't know how to answer. Uh, Some of my friends um, who are not non-Catholic want to know why women cannot be priests. Um, and I didn't know how to answer that question, and yeah, just wanted to get the correct sure. information. Thanks. I appreciate the question. So I'm going to answer it from two different points of view. One is the question of how we know that is the case, and the other one is why it is the case. And with respect to how we know that that is the case, it has been the constant teaching and practice of the Church in Scripture, in sacred tradition, and by the Church's sacred magisterium that ordination can be administered to men only. So this was the practice of Christ. This was the practice of the apostles. Um, this has been the practice for 2,000 years. Uh, the biblical instructions on ordination uh, indicate that it's conferred only on men. And, of course, the, the magisterium of the Church has, has confirmed that every time the question has been raised. So in terms of, of the authority of tradition, scripture, and magisterium, it's, it's unanimous on this issue. There's really no dissent on the matter within the history of Catholicism at all. In terms of why it's the case, uh, the reasons that the Holy See gives are that in the, 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 as, a, as a sacrament, every sacrament is a sign that contains within it uh, the grace that's being signified. And so when we're talking about the, the sacrament of ordination, uh, the priest himself becomes a sign, and he contains within his office the power to confer certain graces on the people of God. What is he a sign of? Well, he's a sign of Christ in, a, in his relationship to the church, which is the relationship of a bridegroom to a bride. And so, uh, particularly in the liturgical celebration, the celebration of the Holy Mass, 
the priest takes the place of Christ, as it were, as kind of a, a kind of a alternate Christ, as it were, in the persona of Christ, in offering the sacred sacrifice, and that's a, that's his sort of preeminent act. And in doing that, he is in relationship to the church as Christ is, as a bridegroom to a bride. And because of the conformity of the sign to the archetype, um, that is the appropriate matter for ordination. Now. Once we've said that, there are all kinds of things we can we can say in addition to kind of qualify that uniqueness of the office of the priest in the church. Mm-hmm. One is the recognition that all Christians participate in the baptismal priesthood. So every baptized woman is a priest in the Catholic Church according to the baptismal priesthood and can offer sacrifice and can rule and can govern and can teach and do all kinds of things that priests do, but in another domain, a non-liturgical domain, okay? And uh, it's clearly, when you look at the history of the church, you can see women doing all of those things, and some with with great effect. I mean, yeah. the, one of my favorites, Catherine of Siena, um, prophetically told the Pope, you know, gave him what for, and pushed him around a bit, and he did what she said because of the her own personal charism of authority and teaching and so mm-hmm. forth. Mm-hmm. Um, I always point out whenever I'm on the air on EWTN that the foundress of EWTN was a woman who yes. who had a governing jurisdiction. Uh, over a Catholic agency and and held great sway both as a teacher and an authority in the world. I mean, so this is a prominent example. I look at the International Theological Commission, which is the Pope's hand-picked theological advisors, if, as it were, uh, and uh, and a number of very prominent women theologians, of course, on that faculty. Yeah. Um, and you can just sort of pick your Catholic agency and go down the list, and you're going to find one powerful, talented woman after another exercising leadership in the Church. Now, does that mean that there isn't room for improvement in the way m- priests exercise authority uh, with respect to women. And no, of course there's room for improvement. Are there cases of, of chauvinistic, uh, clericalist clergy who, who, as Jesus warns against, mm. um, enjoy being called father and, and priest and, and authority so that they can be seen by men? The, the very kind of attitude of self-aggrandizement that Christ uh, that Christ condemns. Are there are there men who do that in the church? Of course there are, right? Um, has the church always done an adequate job of protecting the people of God against that kind of uh, self-serving use of the ministerial priesthood? No, she has not. These are things that we are well aware of, but it doesn't change the underlying doctrine. Okay. Uh, Eliza, is that helpful for you today? It is, yes. Thank you very much for that. You are most welcome. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. We have one line open right now, 833-288-3986. Call to communion on this Tuesday afternoon here on EWTN. Let's go now to Eileen, a first-time caller from Dallas, listening online, EWTN.com. Hi, Eileen. What's on your mind today? Hello. Um, Thank you for taking my call. I'm calling because... um, I'm not originally from the South, and um, but I've lived in Texas for for a long time now, mm-hmm. and I've had lots of friends and coworkers who are members of the Church of Christ, and I've tried to look up online, like what are the origins of the Church, and and a lot of times it's information from Northern, very liberal. Church of Christ that is not the Southern version. And I really have the most difficulty with them of all of the 
uh, different Christian religions, they just seem very uptight, if you will, and not terribly joyful. And could you explain their origins to me and why they are the way they are? They just they have no music in their church. <laughs> yeah, sure. I, I can say something about it. That's, I never was a part of that uh, tradition, but I know a little bit about it. So the the Christian church, or, or is uh, its origins are in the 19th, early 19th century with a man by the name of Alexander Campbell and his associate Barton Stone. And in uh, 19th century America, the world of Protestantism in 19th century America, was beset by, like it is today, a kind of rampant denominationalism and individualism, everybody doing their own thing and heading in different directions. And there were many people that were understandably concerned about the diversity of Protestant practice, and they wondered, like, why can't we all get on the same page? That, that's, been a, that's been a perennial problem within Protestantism, uh-huh. but it was a kind of an acute worry of people in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, uh, and so a number of people had solutions to the problem. There were some who alleged that they personally had received some new revelation that previously withheld from the church that finally explained the thing the right way. And if you would only get on board with my movement, <laughs> mm. then we would solve this problem. And so I would class Mormonism into that, to a certain extent Seventh-day Adventism under that. Um, Jehovah's Witnesses would fall under that rubric, and other groups as well. Uh, now, in a sense, the Christian Church falls into that category. The Church of Christ, Church right? of Christ, yeah, mm-hmm. not not the Church that Christ founded. I'm oh, not right, 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 that, right. right. Uh, the, the uh, Church of Christ. In, in that, Bar- Campbell and Stone thought that they had the key to solve the problem of of Christian division and denominationalism. But mm. unlike, say, Joseph Smith or Ellen White, they didn't claim personally to have received some new revelation. They thought the problem was. Um, that there hadn't yet been a sufficiently thorough or adequate Reformation. See, the Reformation in the 16th century had had uh, pled for the idea of the Bible alone rather than sacred tradition, and and Campbell and Stone thought, yeah, that was a good idea. We didn't push it hard enough, and so there are these remnants of tradition around that that mess people up. So what we need, they held, was an even more thoroughgoing scriptural literalism where, as, uh, as Campbell put it, he was determined to read the Bible as if no one had ever read it before, which strikes me as a rather foolish way to approach a text. Mm, but yeah. the idea was if you could totally approach it without any kind of prejudices or prejudices or, or blinders, that you would get the, the undiluted Word of God, and that would be what you would base your whole religion on. So that, that position came to be known as restorationism, the idea that we're going to restore the original sense of the sacred text. Now, that's a that's a very naive way to think about reading any text, but that was the premise. And so, sometimes the the uh, the uh, uh, the Church of Christ will take doctrinal positions that are very similar to doctrinal positions taken by other religious denominations, and yet culturally, the attitude of many uh, 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 Church of Christ people is that they're the only ones that have gotten it right. Right, so they may have this group may have this little element, and that group may have another, but we're the we're the guys that finally got it right. And uh, as to why that might translate in the experience of your friends to a kind of dour attitude, I couldn't say. Um, you know, a strict adherence to that sect might lead someone to conclude, we'll say, musical instruments aren't allowed in certain churches or certain kinds of music because we don't find those in the Bible. Um, you know, I'm not exactly sure why that would translate into. Uh, uh, you know, into some kind of um, psychological 
debility. Now, I, there, I, I have done some study, a little bit of study, on whether or not different denominations correlate to greater or lesser degrees of mental health. And I haven't done an exhaustive study of that question. I haven't seen any data that suggests that being a member of the Church of Christ leads to worse mental health. I have not seen that data, right? Um, there is a tradition uh, that does have higher rates of neuroticism and depression. There is a—and that is the—I'm not going to name any specific denomination. Okay. Uh, but the Pentecostal tradition does stand out, and they're— Church of Christ is not Pentecostal, but right, the Pentecostal right. tradition does stand out among Christian groups for having higher rates of neuroticism and depression. Hmm. Any uh, Have you run across any of this, what Eileen is saying, regarding the North versus the South, having more of a oh, South? Oh, yeah, 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 definitely, definitely. Interesting. And there are, there are um, the Southern version is far more fundamentalist. Okay. Yeah. All right, very good. Eileen, thanks so much for your call. Appreciate hearing from you today from Dallas. It's called a communion here on EWTN. Uh, busy phones, if you can, get in. The number is 833-288-EWTN. We have one line open, 833-288-3986. Joseph is in Auburn, Washington, watching us on YouTube this afternoon. Hey, Joseph, what's on your mind today, sir? Hey, uh, thank you for picking up my call, and... Uh I'm just thankful for everything you do. Uh, Tom, it's good you're talking about radio. I, um, I'm i a radio personality who retired because I used to work in the secular radio. Uh-huh. I used to be a producer, and uh, partly what made me just resign was the fact that uh, I was so much involved in, you know, the, doing ads that had a lot of, uh, you know, things that I thought were not mm-hmm. for church. Yeah. I had to. But then... Um, I went ahead and uh, had a gift in uh, music as well. I've opened up a pub. I ended up closing and uh, done a lot of uh, entertainment-oriented kind of businesses that I think just had a very big pull between the morality and uh, the the secular and the Christian um, part of it. Joseph, we're we're, we're coming up on a break. Uh, Do you have a specific question for us? Yeah, the question I was asking is... uh, if you can just uh, enlighten, let me know what's the morality between the profession and career versus talent and what the Church teaches. Okay. Yeah, I can do that. Thank you. Appreciate it. So what the Church teaches is that we can never desire an evil thing. We can't intend to do something evil. If we, that's always wrong. Sometimes we might contribute unwittingly to an evil without intending to, And whether that's acceptable or not depends on the proximity that we have to the evil in question. So let's, you know, you talked about working in radio or advertising. To take an example from that domain, uh, let's say that um, that you had a client that wanted to produce a a kind of, um, you know, immoral advertisement, right? And the content of the ad itself was immoral. Um, If you are the artist that's designing the end product, Right, it'd be a stretch to say, well, I don't really want this content out there in the world, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, let's say you're the bank that's financing the radio station. Well, you're you're contributing indirectly to the production of the product, but you're pretty remote from it, and so that that's kind of the and that's that could be allowable. So the, the the determining question is how proximate are you to the activity? If you're right up close to it contributing directly, that's not acceptable. If you're a little bit more remote, 
that can be acceptable if you have a proportionate reason, like I got to pay my rent and take care yeah. of my kids. Yeah. Okay. Hey, Joseph, thanks so much uh, for your call today here on EWTN's Call to Communion. Our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. It's uh, 833-288-3986. In a moment, we'll talk with Greg in Minnesota, Cynthia in Lubbock, Texas, Annette in San Diego County, Mike in Vero Beach, Florida. Busy phones on this uh, Tuesday afternoon here on EWTN. Stay with us. It's called a communion with Dr. David Anders here on EWTN. Our phone number, we do have two lines open, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Congratulations going out to another member of the EWTN radio family, St. Therese Radio in Abilene, Kansas, celebrating eight years with us. Congratulations to Kate Wilson and her team there at KGIH from all your friends here at EWTN. All right, back to the phones now. Here is Greg in Minnesota, listening online, EWTN.com. Hey, Greg, what's on your mind today, sir? Hi. Well, I've always wondered about, uh, well, and thank you for your program, of course, but, you know, back in the 1990s, there was this joint declaration on uh, justification, and, and I think maybe someone, some people from the Vatican, met with some people from the, maybe the Lutheran World Federation, and supposedly they hashed out these differences on justification and came to some sort of, you know, some sort of agreement. And, you know, other Catholic authors that I've listened to on, you know, on the Internet have indicated that somehow at least, well, to a significant degree, this has been resolved, this question of faith and works and so forth. I was just wondering, is this joint declaration worth reading and pointing and pointing to within dialogues with, you know, my Protestant brothers and sisters? Thank you. I appreciate the question. In, in my own personal humble opinion, it is not worth pointing to, and I'll tell you why. There's nothing wrong with the joint declaration on its face, and you read the text, and it is— uh, it's, everything it says is unobjectionable. It's all theologically correct. Okay. That's not the problem with the Joint Declaration, in my opinion. The problem is the implicature. What do I mean by the word implicature? Implicature is the way a statement is understood, like within a context, not from the immediate words themselves, but the way, but what lies behind them. And it'd be like asking somebody, how was your date um, with that girl you met at work, and the answer was, well, you know, the lobster was really good. <laughs> right? Nothing wrong with the description. It may be <clears throat> factually accurate, but the implicature is it wasn't a very good date. Right? Yeah. Something like that, I think, has gone on. I don't think this was intended, by the way, by the by those who formulated it. I think mm. they had nothing but goodwill. So I'm sure. not saying anything against the church and her ecumenical outreach. Okay. But the way the joint decoration has often been read, the way it's been employed, is exactly the way you suggested, which is to say, hey, we've worked this thing out, we really don't disagree anymore. That's not what the statement says. It doesn't say that we don't disagree. It doesn't say we agree. What the Declaration says are, here are the things we can agree on. Okay. It doesn't tell you what the substance and differences are. Here are all the ways we disagree. And so, to my way of looking at it, like, all those ways that we disagree are still there. Yeah, right? they're still there and they still matter. And and it, the way I've seen the declaration used mm. ecumenically mm-hmm. is usually for Catholics to capitulate to Protestants 
on the on the Catholic distinctions. Ah. And so I think it's I think the way it's often been employed polemically is to the detriment of Catholic doctrine. And again, mm-hmm. that's not the fault of the statement. It's the fault of the way it's usually employed. Okay? Now, what are the substantive differences between Catholics and Protestants on the nature of justification? Well, it boils down to really one question, and that is, do you believe in infusion or imputation? What do I mean? The Catholic position and the biblical position I would maintain is that faith saves us. Justification writes us with God by changing our character, that the infusion of grace into the soul changes a person's character and makes them like Christ. And so that, you know, not, not on their own, but because of the work that Christ has done within them, they objectively merit eternal life. God can look at them, Christ can look at the, the soul that's been transformed and say, well done, good and faithful servant, because you, you've, you've actually loved God and loved neighbor. Right? The Protestant position is that whatever moral change takes place in the individual is not sufficient to merit salvation. And so there may or may not be moral change, but that's irrelevant to the question of being accepted by God, that the soul is accepted by God vicariously for Christ's sake alone. Mm. And the righteousness of Jesus is not infused into the soul, it's imputed to the soul. Imputation means it's counted as if you were righteous, mm. even though you remain objectively sinful. Okay. And so when it comes to the actual course of Christian life, the difference in doctrines is quite substantial. I mean, to, to put it like quite bluntly, Luther wrote, and obviously he was exaggerating, as Luther was wont to do, but he wrote to Philip Melanchthon, go sin boldly, because your justification is assured. And that's nothing a Catholic could ever say. The Catholic position is, if you sin boldly, you might burn in hell boldly, right? And that sin has real eternal consequences, and it, you can, in fact, sever your saving relationship with God through immoral behavior. That's not the Protestant view. The Protestant view is, and to quote the Westminster Confession, that a man can know with infallible certainty that he is elect and going to heaven, regardless of the future conduct of his moral life. It's, it's common for Protestants to, to say that they have been forgiven for their sins past, present, and future. So that they got a clean, they got a, they got a free ticket, right? That's not the Catholic point of view. Now, Catholics believe in grace. They believe in forgiveness. They believe we can't be saved without God's grace. But God's grace saves us by changing us. And when it actually comes to the interpretation of Paul, uh, this again, this is my judgment, yeah, yeah. I think that the, the, the Lutheran interpretation of Paul is just dead wrong. I think Luther profoundly misunderstood St. Paul's meaning. Um, there was a scholar recently, and this is he's only one of many, I think his name is uh, Matthew J. Thomas, published a dissertation on this topic, very interesting, called Paul's Works of the Law in the, in the, in the uh, Perspective of the Second Century Reception. And what Thomas argues, which is something I, I noted, but I didn't write a dissertation about it when I was reading church history, was that everyone in the church until the 4th century who read St. Paul assumed that Paul was talking about exactly what he said he was talking about. Paul said, when he talked in Romans and Galatians, that he was talking about the relationship of Jews to Gentiles and whether or not Gentiles were obligated to follow the Mosaic Code. And when Paul says in that context that you're justified by, by faith and not by works of the law— what he has in mind is Gentiles don't have to circumcise themselves. They don't mm. have to eat kosher. Okay. Right? But he, has, he does not intend that Gentiles don't have to behave morally. That's, he, that's not even on the table for Paul, right? And that, that, is the, that is the ancient reception of Paul, and that's what Paul himself actually means. Um, there, are, there are reasons why, starting in the 4th century, that understanding of Paul's doctrine of justification begins to alter, and it eventually results in Lutheranism in the 16th century. 
Um, but now, modern Protestant scholars even, and I'll point to a Lutheran Protestant scholar by the name of Christer Stendhal, who wrote a magnificent book, I highly recommend it, called Paul Among Jews and Gentiles. Uh, and Stendhal, who is a Lutheran, he taught at Harvard University, comes right out and says, Luther got it wrong. Luther got it wrong, right? That, that, that the ancient view of St. Paul is the correct one and happens to be the Catholic one. Hope that's helpful for you, Greg. Thanks so much for your call. Here is Annette, a first-time caller from San Diego County, listening on St. John Paul II Radio. Hello, Annette. What's on your mind today? Hi. Um, well, I have a question about Mark 10:28, and the last part is, but many that are first will be last, and the last first. And the reason I'm asking about this is because I'm a cradle Catholic, I'm a practicing Catholic, but every now and then I, wa- I run into this woman who's a very good Christian lady, and she's from one of the Protestant mainline religions, I think. Mm-hmm. But uh, her, her thing is, and I think you're familiar with this, Dr. Anders, is to know, know I'm Catholic and always is preaching to me, you know, a verse or something out of the Bible. And this one time she was complaining to me about a Jewish lady in her Mahjong group who will not respond to her, convert, you know, uh, her trying to convert her. And, you know, what do I know? I just said, well, you know, maybe, you know, God knows her heart, and, uh, you know, we really have to, you know, be... And uh, finally, it popped in my mind, this last verse. But many are first, maybe the first will be last, and the last will be first. And she fell back in her chair, her eyes flew open. It was like I threw water on her face. And I'm just wondering now, did I say the right thing? And then I went back to my Bible. So I, I'm a little confused. What is it about that text that... that really took your Protestant friend back. What what why was it that that struck her? I I'm, I'm not sure of that. I guess that's why I'm asked. I think what I'm saying is that that's the way I am interpreting it is that you can do everything right all your life and you're just going and going and then there's this person who at the last or maybe God knows them right along. I see, sure, 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 yeah. So a couple things to untangle here. One of them is uh, Jewish-Christian relations, Catholic-Protestant relations, uh, understanding what Catholics teach about the nature of salvation, uh, and then, of course, biblical interpretation. So let's take some of those in turn. With respect to Jewish-Christian relations, the, uh, the Catholic Church has a pretty solid line on this, that Catholics are not to go about trying to proselytize Jews. Our objective with the Jewish people is not to, you know, make friends with the Jews so I can convert them to my religion. And, and one of the reasons that I left, personally left Protestantism, one of the many reasons I left Protestantism, was because that's not how Protestants think, at least not how evangelical Protestants think. Many, many mainline Protestants do, but the evangelicals I grew up with, they wanted to convert everybody. Whenever they saw someone of another religion, they just saw them as a potential convert. It really objectified them. 
And that began to grate on me after a while because it's so dehumanizing. It's like, you know, constantly being an Amway salesman. <laughs> Nothing against Amway, really. But yeah, you know, the yeah. idea is that, you know, you're not a person to me. You're an object that I have an agenda for. Right, right? right. Rather than, hey, let me get to know you. Tell me about yourself. Mm-hmm. How can I genuinely help you with your, your integral human person? And yeah. you tell me what your situation in life is, and I'll be a friend to you. You know, I'll genuinely care for you. Uh, rather than just seeing you as an object of conversion. And so that's a, that's an offensive way to, to deal with people. And the Catholic position is that God's uh, God's election uh, and his promise to Israel has not been revoked, and God will fulfill that in the way that he fulfills it, right? And our obligation to the Jewish people is to love them and celebrate the things that we have in common. And clearly, if a Jewish person discovers the teaching of the Catholic faith and, and wants to be fully initiated into Catholic life, then we're happy to have them. And there are groups like the Association of Hebrew Catholics that are there to help them and to receive them and to yeah. uh, integrate them into Catholic life. But, uh, but our objective is not to, you know, to, to beat them in with a stick or to beat them over the head with a catechism. Um, so that, that's, that's point number one. Um, you know, the, uh, this gets into the nature of salvation. Point number two, so one of the reasons that Protestants tend so heavily to proselytizing, evangelical Protestants, I should qualify, Mm -hmm. is that they believe that the only way you can go to heaven is if you have a conscious, explicit faith in Jesus and have invited him personally into your heart to be your Lord and Savior. And that absent that act of initiation, you will necessarily go to hell no matter what your life is like, right? That's not the Catholic view. The Catholic view is that we go to heaven if we have the love of God and neighbor in our hearts. And the, the, the means that Christ has given us in the world to get that love of God and neighbor in our hearts is the revelation of God in Christ, which really begins with the call of Abraham and, and concludes with the incarnation. And it's, it's all that the law and the prophets testify unto Jesus and then the person of Christ himself and the church that he founded and the sacraments of the church. It's the, it's the whole kit and caboodle, right, is, is, is the objective means that God gave us to come into that knowledge of God and that love of him that is ultimately salvific. But the church recognizes that some people only have a piece of that. So my Protestant friends, for example, they have, they have 66 of the 73 books of the Bible. Well, they're missing some really good books. You know, they've got two of the seven sacraments. They're missing some really good sacraments. Yeah. But you can get a lot of mileage out of 66 books and, and two sacraments. Right, so it's not impossible for a Protestant to be saved. They just they just lack some of the objective truth and means of grace that we have as Catholics. That's better, right? With respect to the Jews, what do they have? Thirty nine books, right? And and some traditions that are some of them are quite helpful, and uh, and those things are good, and they can be for Jews a means of sanctification and redemption. But they're lacking the full package. They don't have the incarnation of Christ and the sacraments of the Church, and that's a shame. Uh, but they, they, you know, but we're not going to be the judge of that. The God's going to be the judge of that. Uh, that's a different way of relating than the way Protestants mm. think. You've got to have my explicit faith in Jesus or you're lost. That's not the Catholic way of thinking. Um, and then finally, the question of uh, the interpretation of St. Mark in this passage. What does he mean by the first will be last and the last will be first? So I, I, I'll give you my best guess, right? Throughout the ministry of Jesus, it seems to me, one of his perennial concerns, one of his constant concerns was people who are assured of their righteousness before God because of the, the their performance of outward religious duties and rituals, like confidence in my adherence, say, to the, to the traditions of the elders or the Mosaic law or to r- r- purity laws and that sort of thing, that my maintenance of these things is what establishes my rightness with God. And Jesus was pretty clear that that's not the case. 
that that the righteousness that we need before God is is a much more interior righteousness that translates into a genuine love of justice, uh, care for the poor, solicitude for the marginalized, um, is not a respecter of persons, and that's that's much harder to achieve. And so there are people who like uh, that would have been regarded as socially marginalized in their own day, prostitutes, tax collectors, um, uh, that uh, definitely didn't keep those purity laws of Judaism, who would make it into the kingdom of heaven ahead of the scribes and Pharisees, ahead of those that were so confident in their righteousness because they had come to a kind of genuine repentance and gratitude and love of God and neighbor when the religious elite of their own day were, were you know, fussing about with, uh, with trivialities. Yeah. And in that sense is how I understand Christ's words that some who are the first will be last and the last will be first. Annette, thanks so much for your call. It's called a communion here on EWTN. We were talking about our wonderful Catholic radio network here. There's another Catholic radio network that you may not be familiar with, and that's EWTN Radio Essentials, where you can hear the holy sacrifice of the Mass every two hours, plus rosaries, chaplets, stations of the cross, and other devotions every hour. You can hear EWTN Radio Radio Essentials on the EWTN app and by going to EWTN.com. Check out EWTN Radio Essentials. There are some gems on that network. Let's go now to Mike in Vero Beach, Florida, listening on the great Divine Mercy Radio. Hello, Mike. What's on your mind today, sir? Hi. uh, My question is for Dr. David Anders. Um, Thank you so much for the show. It's wonderful. And I hope my question can help some other listeners as well. I'll try to keep it short and sweet. Um, I'm the father of four children, uh, married in the Catholic Church, Dr. Anders. And my question is, I was married to, am married to a woman who, very passionate Catholic, very knowledgeable Catholic about the guidelines and rules and intricacies. And I'll be the first one to, to share it with everybody. I am not perfect. My sinfulness is abundant. However, um, my question pertains to the difference between sins of weakness versus sins of conspiring or premeditation, and and it pertains to my wife decided she wants a divorce, and there was nothing I could do whatsoever for over a year to change her mind or make progress or anything, so much so to the point where whether I liked it or not, she was gone. And so, sadly, we are going through this divorce, and, and in, in closing, my question is, she still holds in front of our children this position that she is the grandiose all-knower of everything Catholic, yet it's somehow okay for her to live this other way. She's pursuing a divorce. She's, you know, there's already a, another man in the picture, et cetera, et cetera. Can you speak to those Catholics who, you know, struggle with sins of their humanity versus the the sort of what seems to be conspiring or premeditated going down this route and yet saying, but I'm the great Catholic. I, yeah, I'm the yeah sure. Thanks. I, I really appreciate the question. So... First of all, I'm really terribly sorry. Yes. I mean, this is a horrible situation you're in, and my heart goes out to you. I really, really am sorry. Um, it, there is a difference uh, when you're talking about, say, sins of malice, for example, versus a sin of weakness. And, and Christ himself seems to have taken a pretty patient line 
with people who were given to sins of weakness, and he was pretty uh, he was pretty harsh with those who had sins of pride and malice, and so he seems to have distinguished them. And practically speaking, if you in the context of the confessional, you're you're going to find that same distinction in my experience. Um, and pastorally, you know th- that that's the right thing to do. Um, now, obviously, when a person is is behaving in a way that's objectively scandalous, particularly to one's children, and holding oneself out to be a religious authority, that's problematic. It's definitely problematic, and and um, you know I I I don't know your situation. I can't obviously get down into the details of of your wife's personality or or why she did the things that she did, uh, but I can I can lament with you, right? That that this is a terrible situation. I acknowledge the distinction that you're drawing. It's not possible for me to form a judgment in this particular case about where your wife falls in that continuum, or where you fall on that continuum for that matter. Um, but, uh, you know, my advice would be to, to commend you to the sacraments of the church and to good pastoral care, good pastoral care, um, and, um, and, and also to fight for your rights as a husband and a father. Make sure you have good legal representation, um, both in the civil court and, honestly, in the canonical court. I mean, you, you don't have to agree to the procedure for an annulment, for example, um, and uh, you can go out and get yourself a decent canon lawyer, and, and you can fight it at that end, too. So, I mean, you definitely have rights as a Catholic and as a citizen. You should stand up for them. Um, you know, parsing judgment on the individual souls involved here is a little bit beyond the purview of the show. Matt, uh, Mike, thank you so much for your call. And let's go to Ed now in Melbourne, Florida, listening on Divine Mercy Radio. Ed, what's on your mind today? Hey, good afternoon, Tom and Dr. Anders. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, I was hoping that uh, Dr. Eners can, um, I'm a little bit muddled on predestination and the elect, kind of like uh, two callers before you were alluding to it. And and what prompted this, I am Catholic, by the way, and, and what prompted this was I watched a debate between, I think his name was James White and Trent Horn on YouTube. It was an older debate. And the question that Mr. White asked Trent, and I love Trent, was, is it your position, Mr. Trent, that the, the elect can lose their salvation. And I think, unless I'm mistaken, Trent said, yes, they can. So I was a little bit taken off, you know, off put by that. I was like, can the elect, is it the Catholic teaching that the elect can lose their salvation? Yeah, I started, let me jump oh, on that okay. real quick because we're running out of time. Um, I, like Trent Horn, I, I think he flubbed that one, honestly. Yeah, the elect cannot lose their salvation, but you can't know you're elect. That's, that's ah. the thing. Elect means... What predestined, me, predestined means in the Catholic context. So these are the these are the ones whom God foreknows will be saved. Okay. So by definition, if you're elect, you're you're saved, right? Yeah. Or you're going to be saved. You will persevere to the end and be saved. But from where we stand right now, we don't know that we're among the elect. That's a big difference between the Protestant and the Catholic. The Protestant claims to know with certainty that he's elect. Um, uh, the Catholic does not claim to know that with certainty, and honestly, the Protestant position is a bit shaky, and when push comes to shove, they begin to waver, and a friend of mine put it this way. He said, the elect know for sure they're going to heaven, and I might be one of them. <laughs> Love that. Ed, thanks so much for your call. Let's stay in Florida. Go to Pat in Mobile, listening on the great Archangel Radio. Pat, what's on your mind today? Well, I was listening earlier, and the the caller who called in and said she couldn't explain to her friend why women couldn't be priests, she didn't have an answer for that. I have some friends who are not Catholic, and they ask me questions. Some of them I can answer, some of them I can't. And if I can't answer the question, 
I don't do, I say, well, I don't know, but I will find out. Mm-hmm. And I wait, I find out, get it all straight in my head, and wait until we have at least a half an hour to answer the question and maybe talk about something else. Uh-huh. And I find out that it gives me a good way to bring the subject back up again and not just leave them hanging. Mm. And also an opportunity to mention a couple other things that I want to throw in there. It was just a thought. It's just how I do it. It may not work for everybody. Yeah, oh, yeah. it's, a, it's find... a wonderful thing to do. If you don't know the answer to a question, say, I don't know the answer to the question. Yeah. I'll get back with you on that. Yeah. yeah, that's a great approach. Good job, Pat. Let's go to Jonathan, a first-time caller in Indiana, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Jonathan, we have about a minute left. What's on your mind? Maybe we'll pick it up tomorrow. How about that? Uh, it's just, uh, I think that's covered by Dr. Anders maybe in the past. I'm not sure. But uh, I listened to uh, uh, Dr. Jeremiah. I'm a cradle Catholic, hardcore Catholic, but I love to listen to other, you know, other uh, evangelical to see their, their views on the biblical uh, uh, text. And um, he just this past weekend, it, 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 his version explanation of, uh, the uh, uh, the rapture, and it may sound good. Why is it that there are even a wise person like Dr. Jeremiah and other you know priests? But he's not anti-Catholic. Yeah, I can jump on that. I'm about to run out of time, so let me say. So, in my humble opinion, my humble opinion, fundamentalists have a confidence that way outstrips the evidence for their position, and and I can deal with that tomorrow's show. But why do people do that? Well, we we're all of us were uncomfortable with uncertainty. Yeah. And and the promise of a system that can explain all of reality, particularly one that puts me at the center and my enemies on the outside, um, is, a, is a gutturally attractive to the human person. Like we all like the idea that I'm a, one of God's elect and everybody else is going to hell in a handbasket and Jesus is coming back tomorrow for me. I mean, that's a I can understand why that would be an attractive position, but it's not one that the evidence bears out in Scripture or traditional reason. Very good. Uh, Jonathan, thanks so much for your call. Couldn't get to Larry in Lawrence, Kansas. Larry, please call us back tomorrow. Hopefully we can get you on uh, at the beginning of the show so that we won't run out of time. Dr. David Andrews, thank you, sir. Hey, thanks, Tom. My thanks to our fantastic team here, Charles, Matt, and Rich today. I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Andrews. Thanks for joining us. See you tomorrow on the Wednesday edition of Call to Communion here on EWTN. You have a blessed day and take care.